0: Drugs, rock and roll, aliens, and all that kinds of shit. Come and join Ozzy and myself. Visit osbornmediahouse.com to get special access to, to. Come on! What do you say? Do you think it's the wildest show on the internet? Oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician, Clint Ramsey, brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 451 42 Two
0: zero.
1: I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Good podcast, Bill. You found the bystander podcast. Hey, today I have Stephen R- Roly with me today. He's the author of a new book called The Lost Coin, and I'm excited to talk to him today. I hope you can be a friend and tell a friend about the podcast and support us on Patreon. Stephen, how you doing? I'm really good.
2: Thanks for having me here.
1: Good. I've gotten into this book. I will tell you the honest truth: I haven't gotten through it, but I like what's going on. of only had it for a week here. Um, it's a memoir of your, basically, childhood, um, coming from an adopted situation and trying to find your birth parents later in life. Um, how, how did you get started thinking about this? This is a book that you wanted to write. I know that you took a step into this journey, uh, but how did it become a, a passion that you wanted to write about?
2: Well, that's a good question. I, uh, um, just to back way back, I always knew I was adopted and, and I certainly didn't think for many years I'd be writing a book about it, uh, nor for, up until I was about thirteen, did I even have the impetus to go find have some curiosity burn a curiosity to find my birth parents but more immediately uh I think the book was in me to tell you the truth but uh two years ago um I got notifications through twenty three and me that uh from a a relative uh who was identified as a first cousin uh which meant a big deal to me that they were i was actually really related to him and got in touch with me turned out it was not a cousin, but it turned out this person's uh um, mother, uh, was one of my, what I soon learned was one of my half sisters and through a flurry of emails within a half hour, uh, discovered that, uh, the name of my birth father, I knew a little about him and I shared that with the family and that was all they needed because I knew exactly well, I, I self-identified as definitely his biological son. So, with that, I, I inherited four new uh, half-sisters and a, a huge family on their side. Uh, we're all roughly the same age, and uh, right after that, we began exchanging uh, photographs and family stories. And, but I'd say within a couple of days, I just sat down and started to write. I had already found my birth mother many years ago when I was age forty, and now here was the other end, the other bookend. Uh, discovering without any effort, seemingly any effort on my part, discovering my, her father. So having now known, known both of them, discovered them by very different means, uh, it just seemed this was the time to write. Now I've been, I've been I'm writing, I have an academic background and, and I've written a little about adoption, but I sat down and wrote six days a week, six or seven hours a day for, Five months and I came up with the first draft uh, on Labor Day in 2022, which led me to an agent and editor and all that stuff. So uh, but but that it just kind of came out. Um, of course, it required a lot of editing, but the story was in there, and uh, it seemed because of my background, both in education but also as a psychotherapist here on Bainbridge Island, that they, I was bringing something else new to the story that was m- more compelling to me. Uh, it wasn't just the outer story of my search. was uh, kind of a detective story, which is interesting in itself, um, but uh, what I was discovering by writing and what I already knew was the kind of exploration of the inner life. Of of me as an adoptee, but also I think what are some universals that about the the uh, primal wound that happens to infants when they're separated from mothers at an early early age, and so that telling that story uh became even more compelling to me.
1: Tell me a little bit more about that primal wound because you were adopted at a very young age, six right. months, correct, mm-hmm. and you were adopted into a loving family and had a sense of security, and your parents, adoptive parents, treated you well, correct? Very well. Um, So what was burning inside you that (laughs) made you feel like uh, it wasn't a complete
2: You know, life. I I suppose, I mean, you can put words to it. It's, uh, uh, none of them seem adequate, although I try to do the best I can in the book. There, there, I think this is true for so many other adoptees. Sometimes it's unconscious. A lot of times it's conscious as a nagging feeling of something being not quite complete. There's something missing. Uh, even with loving and supportive parents like mine, you kind of go, well, what's wrong? You got a great life, uh, supported in education, you know, affluent upbringing and so forth. So what, what do I have to gripe about? So, but over time, it just seemed that, that that's something, that completion of knowledge, uh, also the visceral connection to, um, presumably at that time, a, uh, uh, an unknown, um, birth mother just seemed, on an emotional level just compelling. Now, that wasn't like a steady state, it got up and down over the years. In the early years, which in my book recounts in the in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s, these are the pre-internet days. So there was no Google, there was no 23andMe, there was no Ancestry.com. So a lot of that, uh, I'll call it yearning, had to just simply sit there because there, I had to wait basically to go to college so I could have my own mailing address. Uh, I there's a, a really uh, pivotal part of the book that talks about the uh, – where I talk about my mother uh, when I raised – when I was age 13 and raised the question of wanting to know more. Uh, she flew into a major fit and said, "What's the matter? Don't you think we love you enough?" I was so shamed by that and so angered by that that I swore to myself I'd never talk to her about it again. I never, I never did, much to my chagrin as I got older. But I, but I didn't. So, but that that was the, the kind of lit the fuse. It was what sort of like I will, I will find. Uh, it'll take me a long time, but I will find my birth mother just for the seer completing completing some of that the the incomplete connection.
1: What do you mean by? Waiting
2: for college to get a your own mailing list. I well, question. I wasn't going to be writing to my adoption agency or to the st- ah. state of Missouri, coming back through the mail and they're going, to, "What's this?" And, you know, I, I, and frankly, it, it, and when I was still in high school, I had other things to do. And I, uh, as I got to college, I had a little bit more wherewithal. There were some measures of being able to locate, uh, the, the, um, ad- adoption agency that I came from and some of the other, I could had a more adult approach to finding out addresses of, you know, uh, state County offices back in Missouri. So how uh, old are you now? How old am I? Yeah. I'm older than you are. <laughs> I'm
1: 57. I'm 74. Okay. So this has been brewing inside you for a long, long, long time. Well,
2: since we're in this, uh, on my age thing, um, My birthday is February 10th. So February 10th, 2020, uh, 2024, I'll be 75 on that day. Along with a, a new uh, colleague I have, uh, we'll be speaking at the Kansas City Library, just a mile or two away from the original site of the of the Willows Maternity Sanitarium. So I'm doing it, admittedly for nostalgic reasons. There's another writers' conference we're speaking at the day before, but it's that kind of. Uh, it's not just me, but the, of all the people that say in the Willows has a huge community on Facebook. There are a lot of us out there, and even from one particular institution, the Willows Maternity Sanitarium, which was the. The hub of the adoption, Kansas City itself was the hub of the adoption world for several decades because of the train stations and other means of mm. transportation. So, uh, But this was the penultimate. This was sort of the writs of the, of the bunch, even though my birth mother did not come from a wealthy family by any means. But I think that hearing those, getting to know some of those folks and having those conversations reinforces time and again, uh, we all had something similar happen that, that brought us, you know, we were all given up for better or worse, and, and let's say in many cases for the better, <laughs> excuse me, but still there is the, um, we all carry that primal wound that I'm calling that. There's a lot of other people from an academic point of view written about this. Uh, so it's not, a, I didn't invent the term, but it's something just by that very fact, it's a form of trauma, it's a separation. Now we can't access that in our minds <laughs> as adults looking back to when we were, you know, two weeks old, mm-hmm. still... Uh, there is; uh, it is a form of trauma. It's a developmental f- form of trauma, and, I th- and my contention is that it stays with us in one form or another. Now, it may it may radically alter our behavior as adults; it may not, um, but it's still something we carry. And the more people, as I've had these discussions through the book, uh, bring these issues up, it's from a psychotherapeutic point of view, uh, from a Jungian point of view, or a depth psychology point of view. People, the lights blink on and go, "Oh." Now I get it. Now I have this feeling uh there's a great book by uh, Danny Shapiro, who was a writer who wrote her book in hair a couple of years ago now she had she grew up Jewish, although she had blue eyes and blonde hair. Um, everybody kept telling you 're not Jewish like your parents. They were asking jews and and back east and uh she just discounted them and then it wasn 't until she was in her early fifties, which was maybe six years ago now. Their mother finally blabbed that her father, who she adored, who was no longer alive, wasn't really her birth father. It was a sperm donor, and uh, her husband and she, rem- remarkably, miraculously, was able were able to locate and identify him within like less than two days. So, but up to that and through her writing, talks about that same something. Something wasn't right. Something was something missing something she couldn't put her hand on yet. She describes it beautifully. So, uh, I think that's not an uncommon, uh, psychological, emotional state that a lot of people have. Believe me, not everybody who's been adopted feels that way. Um, but on the other hand, in, in, when we're talking about the unconscious, that it's by definition, sometimes we can't be aware of. But when we look at, um, behavior patterns in adults who have had other forms of trauma as well, including, uh, this kind of separation, um, uh, uh unstable relationships move around a lot can 't hold jobs uh don 't feel you know secure in relationships uh i've said that uh you know if we ha- if our if our adoption community had a theme song it would be bob dylan 's like a rolling stone mm-hmm. you know, how does it feel to be a complete unknown like a rolling stone known direction at home it's that kind of um I'm going to throw that chair out after this interview. It's driving me nuts. <laughs> well, don't have me with it. So anyway, so that's that, uh, that's that kind of, uh, quality. And, and I go into the book and talk about it from without getting too jargony and, and psychological. The, uh,
1: well, I also don't want to give away the book. People need to read this book. Okay.
2: But this, this, I call it the inner orphan. This some, this something that's searching. Searching for a home, searching for connection. And you could say little. I mean, I've been married for, well, uh, we just passed our 33rd anniversary and I've came from a stable home, but still there's that something else that, uh, now I'm much more down the road as the book gets into later. I've sort of moved some, through some of that, but it's a, it's something I think most adoptees uh, uh, identify with in terms of their inner lives. Our outer lives are completely different, completely different, but our inner lives much more in common.
1: Okay, I have a rescue dog, Romeo, that was taken away from his pack by a hurricane, and he was feral for the first six weeks and did not nurse, and he has fear anxiety. I was wondering if there's any correlation of the, the separation being that an adoptee may not have breastfed, and they don't have a con- connectivity with their mom, but it sounds like you were adopted a
2: little bit uh, uh, further the down the road. Breastfeeding is maybe um, the, by its own definition of primal wound. There's something more in my mind anyway, something uh, deeper in the psyche that goes beyond. Cause uh, I probably was, other people who are, were, were not best breast, breastfed uh, can turn out with entirely different kind of psycho emotional lives, but, uh, but as far as – but again, I want to be clear that the, the, type, the type of trauma I'm talking about is, is aligned with or similar to other kinds of early childhood trauma that uh, peop, children can, you know, can be sexual, can be physical, can be emotional, can be neglect. Uh, those are all forms of trauma that hit particularly when you're that young, maybe even before memory.
1: And that's all subconscious.
2: Uh, yeah, until you begin to identify and work on, you know, bringing the unconscious to consciousness, which is partly what therapy does. You, that can, does. Therapy isn't the only way to do that. You get it by reading, hearing, meeting people, reading the stories of other adoptees and going, go, oh, yeah, that's – I can see that. I can see that.
1: So, yeah, you call this book a, a memoir of adoption and
2: destiny. I feel like it's um, more about identity. Would well, that be it's, fair? It, it's it's both. Uh Uh, the through line, so to speak of, as the, uh, you know, I wanted to ask one question uh, from my earliest days, who am I? So that, that who am I, uh, kind of echoes through the different chapters of my life. Not all of them about my adoption, but the adoption, uh, story, so to speak, that storyline, of course, it, it, it revolves itself, uh, spools itself through my life story anyway. So, um, I'm oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Sorry,
1: let's talk about a little bit of about your identity. And you had a piece in the book about traveling to Chicago with your grandfather right. and your father selling your house to a black man, and that was uncommon in your rural white area of where you grew up. Talk a little bit about how you saw identity once you got out of
2: For Um, lack of a better term, the cornfields. You've conflated two things. By the way, just clarify: the first part about my grandfather was on a cattle truck to the Chicago stockyards. When I was little, I was probably seven years old, so it was an eye opener seeing thousands of, for the first time ever, thousands of cattle and hogs, you know, being led to slaughter. um, Riding the L in Chicago in the would have been late, you know, the mid fifties, seeing. Um, poverty and black tenements that I'd never seen before and also seeing Ernie Banks, uh, mm-hmm. for the first time at Wrigley Field. So they were, I would label those as at a young age being exposed to these things. And I, the, the echo being when a little bit later, when my family lived in Iowa City, my dad was completing his surgical residency there it was a big deal to sell a house to an African American man a black man so he had to, he asked around uh, the neighbors to make sure that was okay uh it stuck out of my mind is like that's still the times we were in so this around race around poverty around class, social class. When uh, we moved back uh, uh to my hometown in Burlington, um we had a nice big house across the street from a country club. Not every kid was living across from a country club. So that's kind of, uh, it's both identity or who am I, but also the kind of like uh, uh, consciousness raising around those critical issues, I think at a really young age compared to what happened for many people much later in life. So I was blessed in that way to have that be exposed in those ways that, uh, I think, uh, uh, put me on a different tra- trajectory that was different than many of the people I grew up with. Yeah. Gotcha.
1: So you didn't spend much time with people of color as you, as you grew up in.
2: Well, in, in Burlington, Iowa, there's, there are, there were and are uh, black people and, um, um, portions of the community were black, but, um, Sports, of course, was the the great integrator. I mean, we played, you know, side by side with um, um, black kids and so forth, classmates. But outside of that, as I point out in the book, we didn't socialize. It it was not even on our radar screen. It wasn't a matter of like even thinking that, "Well, these guys are our friends." Like we treated them the same. Of course, that's all BS. But um, um, but it was. I think probably took going to college to get uh, in to live through the radical uh, sixties and seventies, both in terms of uh, some of the, the strikes and uh, school shutdowns that happened at uh, University of Wisconsin. Some of those were uh, over the Black Student Union. Uh, a Way more diverse uh, student body that was there uh, than I was, I grew up around. So, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty much of a, uh, had I not began to have some other level of consciousness, I could have fallen right into the kind of the Odyssey and Harriet world and never questioned, never understood much more than what was going on around me that includes also that also includes as i mentioned in the book the uh, any acknowledgement about people who then were called homosexuals we called you know gay lesbian uh, communities there that existed but it took me years to hear from other friends who knew what was happening in town and kind of the, the the darker regions of the social world there that was a not an altogether pleasant experience for some who had to live secreted and closeted lives but that was around me too so you know, these, these, this kind of unfolding of consciousness, which is a really interesting topic to me, how it happens. I mean, this is where destiny, I think, comes in to bring your, your word back. It's as though these things were faded. You know, the, the life I've had, I mean, here I am, uh, you, you know, ultimately going to Stanford and having a, you know, a career in education, landing here as superintendent in Bainbridge Island for a, a while. I mean, it was a lot of hard work. But it was also a lot of luck. Involved involved in that, and you're kind of thinking. When I finally did, was on the way to meeting my birth mother, uh, which would have been around 1988, when I was just about 40. I got a letter from my one of my new half sisters telling me what her life had been like. Now she's only 11 months younger than I am, and her letter is heart wrenching. Uh, I don't know if you got that far in the book, but her description of her life and her sisters and her brother with um, a different father. You kind of go well. That's the fate I missed. I mean, I I I missed you know. And my birth mother ended up uh, having a severe problems with drug and alcohol abuse. And when I did meet her back in a um, urban area back east, uh, was living in a had just come out of a halfway house, living in government sponsored uh, housing. You look at that and kind of go, here I am, like fresh out of Stanford, Mister PhD. And although our reunion was was anything but that, but it was still that recognition. Like, wow, I could have. Could tell the people could a little made.
1: bit about that experience. How when you guys finally did
2: meet? <laughs> well, uh, she knew in advance it was coming. I had written a letter to her, which I, I've saved, as you can see in the book. I saved almost all the correspondence and paperwork I had all, all over these years. So, m- one of my half sisters uh, and I, she drove me to where she, where my birth mother was living. I call her Patty in the Do I call her Patty? I can't remember which name I gave her. In the, Gloria, uh, Gloria Jean Johnson, Jean. Yeah, was, you made up names yeah, to protect. I have to I have to be careful. Um, so anyway, uh, she knocks at the door and the door opens a crack. And I can see a figure, really short. And she said, you know, Mom, Steve's here. He's all the way from California. And the first word she said to me was, who the hell gave you the right to look me up? I didn't ask you to come here. So that was a little bit of a, you know, big gulp time. They're like, yeah. oh, take a deep breath. So I did. And uh I had brought flowers, some actually quite rare long stem white roses in a in a beautiful long white box and handed it to her and said, I just want to know uh first of all that I didn't just sort of arrive. It took me some time to find you, and by the way, these flowers are for you. And it took a it was a pause, then she glanced at me and said, Hmm, no one's ever given me flowers. Now you know, even, even today, it's a, it's heart wrenching yeah. to hear that and to hear what that meant. It meant a simple gesture as flowers. I mean, uh, and she had never received that. So, so we make our way into the kitchen, which is pretty barren and, uh, uh, clean, but she obviously felt unlived and she'd been there a couple of weeks and she had a, a roommate who was battling schizophrenia who wasn't there that afternoon. And she uh, waved to the other room and apologized for not having her books there. And I said, well, how many books do you have? She said, well, I don't know, more than 500. At least they're all in boxes someplace. And then light bulbs started to go off in my head. It's like, cause I'm, you know, I had a, I've had a strong background in academia, lots of books in my life and so forth. And uh, as I'm taking that out and, and I'm looking around the walls of the kitchen and I noticed a, a poster over on the wall and I said something about, oh, I see you've, you've been to the National Gallery and, uh, and. She looks over her shoulder and points to the post. She says, well, that's a Kandinsky, of course. And then she launches into this recitation on, on exactly what period of, of, of Kandinsky's artistic life that came from. And, uh, it was a little miniature lecture on European art history. I just was mind boggling because weeks before that, I knew she'd been wandering the streets, you know, uh, you know, eventually picked up with, uh, you know, boost bottles and pills and so forth. So anyway, I'll, will t- cut to the, the main. Thing, which I think is almost the heart of the whole book. Um, I told her, I told a joke. I told a Ronald Reagan joke. He, <laughs> he was running for president and I could tell she didn't like him and nor did I. Um, but when I told the joke, she erupted in this spectacular burst of just humor and energy, just almost a howl. And it was so infectious that at that moment, it was like a spot mind melt. I, she opened up to me. I could, I could feel her. I could feel myself in her, I think she could feel herself and me. Her sense of humor was like mine. She thought the same way as she did. We had some of the same biases that, that each of us held. And at that moment, it was like, I'm home. I mean, still hard to talk about without getting uh, uh, just as emotional as was the, the day that it had it. So, um, and then I, then I went on and I asked her the one question I really wanted the answer to, which I didn't need to ask because I knew the answer. But um, that was, <laughs> do you remember me on my birthday? And that was, uh, of course. So that answered the question, like, no, I never left you. I mean, in up in my mind and heart and nor had I. So that's what made that reunion so unbelievably special and moving. Uh, you know, um, just like the old, uh, Walt Whitman quote after for the rest of the day, we were together. I forgot the rest. I just kind of like, so I saw her another, the following day after I went out to a, a, another area to meet my other half sister came back and we spent a, a couple hours and she had introduce, introduced me to her friend as her, as her son and told me, or that my sister told me, my half sister said, you know, we always knew about you. We always had a, a chair at the table and no one said, and we knew that was you, you'd come back. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, but after that. Did uh, you broach the subject of
1: why you were given up for adoption and the others were not.
2: Well, the other kids, uh, it's a good question. Uh, uh, I didn't have the presence.
1: I felt uneasy asking it.
2: (laughs) No, it's okay. Well, I think she had it. She had by then the other three kids she had were with, she was married by then. Hmm. So they were going to keep those kids. Uh, (laughs) this is where I put in the book that I had notes and I've lost them over years. I can't believe this is the part I'd lose, but, um, she said, "Oh, you probably want to know about your birth father. I don't remember much about him in any way." And then I recall that, at least for next hour, that's all she did was talk about him. So, um but my that's faded with me- faded soon after in my memory. But I it didn't seem to matter because I think in the big picture, finding her seemed always seem more important than finding him. So, and maybe that's just natural being a mother and whatever. But the but I I dare say that um, uh, her emotional bond with me then and we recognized when I left. It's like we're holding each other in each other's arms saying this, the last time this happened was I was 10 days old and the sacrifice on her side that she endured by giving me up Mm -hmm. and going back to her small town. She was a nurse, but uh, I know for a fact uh, from other sources that life was tragic for her after that, after that process. And, and the, the kids didn't have her, other kids didn't have the same relationship. Her life went off the rails. Um, for a long time, and uh, she died a couple of years after I, I met her. I never saw her again.
1: You just saw her those two days. Yep. And did you ever um, get in touch with
2: your birth father or find out who it is? No, that was that. What I, when we began? I uh, wasn't until two years ago that I discovered who he was, through my half sisters. And he had been deceased since 1985. Um, there was a little hint, and I, I, I ha- I'm still weighing. I'm trying to weigh in and appreciate what it's like to be uh, on their side. Suddenly this guy out of nowhere, mm-hmm. regardless it's gotta of be the, difficult for ca- both sides. Kind of like, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm, we're related. You know, we're, we share the, our birth father. And I think, um, one of my half sisters who was just really close to my age, uh, um, Said, well, she said, we, I got a laugh out after I read the book. She said, it's clear you didn't get your brains from, from our dad. <laughs> you did get it. You did get your, your athletic ability. He had been, a, he would um, uh, uh, lettered in four sports at, uh, Indiana University back, back in the day. But I had a feeling that, that it was, that was, um, she said, yeah, you would have butted heads. You wouldn't have got along at all. So. So I don't know where – I do – I think there was also very likely another kind of quote love child in his life that was also a form of embarrassment. So I don't know whether his wife knew about me, their mother. I don't know. Uh, my guess is that – but uh, at the time that I was conceived, he already had at least one child and and might have had another one. Um, you know, it was close to being born or had been born. So that clearly is a sensitive subject, although when you look at the pictures of all of us, we look – Pretty much alike. And when Mm -hmm. I look at their children, and I've seen pictures of all of their children, um, you know, I kind of go, wow, there's a lot of... I can see myself in in, in the way they look, yeah. Yeah, But but other than that, our our lives in terms of my uh, um, professional life, my own interests, uh, uh, and so forth, we're we're really pretty different in that way. So, And, you know, I I think life repeats
1: itself sometimes. I I know kids of divorce... Often get married and get divorced as well. You were adopted and then you turned to become a uh, adopt, I, I, My
2: wife and I adopted our son. Yeah. Yeah. When he was four years old. And you weren't really planning on that. Correct. It was the first thing from my mind. We'd been – both were in education. Uh I had been – my wife had been a teacher for years and still had a, a major 40-year career as a teacher and uh, and teacher trainer. And I had gone through the ranks and uh, had been a teacher, principal, school district superintendent, college professor and all, all that stuff. But we were like, hey, we love kids. We love them at the office. We gave at the office when we're home. We have our own time. And we had no way we were going to have a kid until – our son showed up, uh, by uh, another story about how he showed up. And, and once we saw him, it was all over. It was all over. I mean, I think he saw it too. We just absolutely fell in love. We said, it's still true, except for you. We want you. We want you are our son <laughs> almost from the get go. And, uh, uh, we were completely right in that. And then we had a couple months of, of a fight to, to get the legal, uh, um, pieces in place so we could do that.
1: Yes. Um, are you still actively working as a therapist?
2: Yep, I am. And do you work with people that have been adopted? Uh, ironically, no, I haven't. Um, I've had correspondence with other people and other therapists about the issue, but, uh, no, I don't, I don't, I, on my website, I, I talk about adoption a bit. Of course, there's the whole page about my memoir itself, but, uh, but, but it's just next to that, I, my specialty in, as a Jungian depth psychologist, depth psychotherapist is that, uh, um, I specialize in working with trauma. So that, so that part is really familiar territory for me. So yes. And, um, so most people, not all, I mean, some people come with some pretty straightforward propositions and a problem they want to help get solved. And I help them with that. But for others who are plagued by deeper forms of anxiety, depression, uh, big life, you know, uh, transitions through divorce, illness, loss, loss of job, or all sometimes call an existential crisis. Like, who am I at age 50? Mm-hmm. My kids are grown up and I'm almost ready to retire. What am I going to do now? Who am I now? Yeah. It was my third chapter. Yeah. That's where I, that's what I do. That's, that's my, the sweet spot for me. And it's, it's infinitely interesting. And, but it, but it's informed by understanding the nature of psyche. Um, I'm not. A, I can do cognitive-behavioral therapy, and find myself doing it from time to time. But it's, it's much more recognition that so much of what is um, beh- underneath, though, is things like depression and, uh, and anxiety, or oftentimes other forms of, uh, of anxiety, or other forms of uh, trauma of some kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes people have experienced stuff don't not it as such. Yeah. I, think, you don't oh, I thought everybody. I thought everybody's uh, old man. You know, used to hit him. Gee, me. <laughs> Uh that kind of thing, so they don't if you're getting hit it's not normal <laughs> no, it's not normal but it but at all uh, regrettably we know how many uh you know only children under ten years old have been traumatized by beatings by and sometimes what I'd referred to before um uh, developmental trauma, different than f- f- blunt force, you know, physical trauma or emotional trauma. And this has to do with the way, the way in which, uh, children bond or don't bond adequately when they're quite young. And, uh, uh, so if, if, uh, the tri- infinite, is in kind of a conscious awareness that you it has any senses that we're not, if I get a dirty diaper or I get hungry and I start to cry, I'm not sure mom's coming around at all. Mm. Maybe she will and maybe she won't. But every time, every time it's a new, it's a new proposition. So that forms a kind of a lifelong kind of pattern of insecurity. Uh, Now, there's other forms, and of course, the worst form actually is neglect, where children just abject, completely uh, um, neglected. But that stunts normal development, and/or it also leaves this imprint of trauma in on the psyche. Yeah,
1: early childhood's everything. Mm-hmm.
2: Really is. So that, you know, I'm using this metaphorically, of course, and I talk about this in the book that it, that we, what we call a kind of a splintering. So, for example, I mean, this is really common. Um Kids are seven, eight, nine years old, even younger, and and parents go through a divorce and the parents think they've got it worked out and they split their time with their kid. But that, but that, it often it's such a telling form of trauma that stays and stays in the kid and creates a kind of a sense of uncertainty about about other people and a sense of loss that they can't quite put their finger on. Or certainly up until their adults have a way of, of grieving the fact that you that your parents left you. Do you feel? Do you see that trauma in uh, kids of divorce divorce mm-hmm. parents? Yeah, I see it in kids and, and adults. It's really easy going back through case histories and kind of. You know, it's one of those questions I have, you know, did you go, go through a divorce and so forth? So, um, now there's a whole, I don't know where we want to go there. I'll just mention that also these, these kinds of, uh, early childhood traumas and including sometimes concussions and head injuries can create a, a form of brain dysregulation that un, is underscoring or the cause, root cause of emotional dysfunction. So, dysfunction. So, uh, there's other treatments and remedies for that, but, but it's a, that's why, uh, early childhood is, is, complicated. And also when we do see kids and parents who are so wonderfully bonded and who who they are love is unconditional and where kids are read to and listened to and cared for physically and made to feel safe, it seems so normal and what we'd like to think, but of course it doesn't happen that way for a lot of people. So uh, you can go to, I, I, any teacher from any place would tell you, you can spot them in a classroom right away, the ones that are squirrely, mm-hmm. not attentive, not 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 able to obey uh, uh, authority, figures uh, of authority like a teacher, uh, doing poorly in school, highly distracted, the so-called ADHD. There is some other – usually some other kind of traumatic history. I had a thesis at, at, when I went to Pacifica Graduate Institute I, that I didn't write, but I was when I supervised principals uh, in various other school districts here in the Seattle area, We look at the kids who are getting D's and F's in their freshman year in high school, which if you get two of those, you're, you're not going to graduate. I mean, it's just, unless you kill yourself and go to summer school. So you're already creating dropouts by those D's and F's. But when you, when I go through with principals and say, tell me who these kids are, there's all kinds of stories about. Family life, drugs and alcohol, fights, gangs. I mean, it's like it's not your their intellectual ability to learn algebra. It's about all the other learning obstacles and psychoemotional obstacles that, that create failure. Yeah. So that that's why these these antecedents and early childhood experiences are so telling. Now they're not they're not immutable. They're not they're not like you can't overcome them. And a lot of famous people that we know have overcome them quite well, but not everybody does. And uh and even for those who have managed to, uh, um, succeed on some levels, you, you know, you think of how many entertainers you heard can never get over the fact that they grew up poor. I grew up in the poor, poor in Brooklyn. We all, everybody was poor. Everybody's, you know, we lived all, you know, all six of the family lived in, you know, two bedrooms and or one bedroom and so forth. Some people just cannot forget for all the understandable reasons. And so that, that really does alter our, our life trajectory. It is in a sense going back to the uh, part of what becomes destiny. It doesn't mean absolutely you're fated to have things happen, but you can get that sense through my book, I think, and you hear the life stories, I've heard so many, as though you had an invisible hand behind you guiding you through life. And sometimes those directions are not always in happy places, but other, other people who manage to survive and do well, the sometimes it's unexplainable. Once you're adult
1: and you recognize the traumas that are hindering you going forward, how do you break that cycle if you know what's wrong and
2: where it stems from, but yet you still have that behavior? Well, sometimes I, I'm going to try to make what's a really a, a great question and one that ha- deserves probably a book to be written <laughs> in response to it. But <clears throat> sometimes what happens is, is uh, unresolved grief, and it's hard to, to say. Well, I was five years old. How could I have grief? But sometimes we kind of as though we can go back in time and, and mourn the loss. Of of a divorce, mourn the loss of an inattentive parent, mourn in the loss of a of a of a parent that may have died. Uh, we think we may have gone through something we call grief, but oftentimes we don't. And so that we begin, or we have an overbearing parent, for example, who's who's uh, an authoritarian who demands certain kinds of behavior out of you no matter what, and uh, is quite removed from you emotionally. Um, and set absurd expectations and are punishing for not setting those expectations, those become the ghosts. Those become, even for people whose parent, whose abusive parent is dead for 10 years or longer, is still are trying to act to make dad happy. You know, like, well, I wasn't such a good football player, but I'm doing what I can today in the men's basketball league. I'll show my dad I can be a good athlete or a good golfer or whatever, trying to or trying to prove mom I'm a, you know, as good a mother as anybody. You have those ghosts from the past that are as though they have written the script for you that you're following without even knowing it. So some of the work is actually how do you uncover that uh, cautiously to realize, oh, yeah. And there's other techniques, of course, I won't go into now about how one begins to delve into that. Sometimes people also get hung up on on uh, not being able to resolve who those parents were, for example, somebody may say um in in a therapeutic session, what I learned over time is one version of Dad was he was a drunken old s o b and was abusive to my mom and me, and I hate his guts. And I spit on his grave the other one well, he wasn't such a bad guy after all mm-hmm. you know he came to my he came to my sports games he came to the he seemed conference. to highlight the negatives and so for people get hung up is they feel, in a sense, forced to choose one story or the other, deny mm-hmm. the other side. It can go, it works both ways. So some of the work in therapy is how you actually embrace both. Yeah, that and, was actually both. And and I'll I won't go into the details of this, but, but how you uh, – it's not forever, but it's consciously bringing that both of these are true and basically how uh, our inner lives, our psyches have a way of – or fate sometimes have a way of finding a, a resolution to those opposites. It's called the tension of the opposites, and it takes some. It takes a lot of patience to do that. It's not something you can say, "Well, I did it in therapy session. Good, I'm on my way." These things might take who knows how long? I may, a week, a month, a year. Suddenly, you'll be able to have a recognition of which, what combined version of dad is closer to your truth about them. So, uh, but. I'm, if we're getting on the road with what therapy can be, it's not this way for a lot of people. But uh, uh, yeah, that's the, the, the yeah, the ghost, there are a couple really good books by James Salls. One is the dispelling the, uh, the ghosts that rule our lives. It's something like that. And that's so true for so many people. We have that invisible script writing ghost, our moms, our dads, usually one or the other or both that seem to be um, leading us and guiding us. Not always in directions we really want, should be on
1: you had a quote, and I'm gonna misquote it, but um, uh, a rock lost in the river is found in the river right right, and it comes down to how you how you look for that, you know what what things are interfering with your line of sight,
2: right. Um, what, what does that quote mean to you? Well, this quote is actually a Zen koan, which is a, 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 a used in in training Zen priests, and it's a way of of presenting puzzles to the mind. This is not; these are not puzzles to be solved. They're puzzles to be wrestled with. If you don't mind, I'll read just. Please. See, so, um, so writing this book in particular, Zen koan was present for me. The coin lost in the river is found in the river. The coin lost in the river is found in the river, and of course, it's utterly like. Well, duh, of course. It's like saying, it's it's as though, of course, it's not true. Like, well, I I found my keys where I left them last, and that's where I found them. It's not that at all. It reminded me of the many mysteries of my life. Who am I? To what extent did simple twists of fate shape the contours of my destiny? Over many months, I came to understand firsthand that the purpose of a koan is to tease the mind while pushing it beyond its limitations of reason and explanations. The coin lost in the river is found in the river. The meaning of life if there is one may be like a coin that is lost in clear river water, but due to the distortion and refraction of light, it may not be where we think it should be. And in searching the murky waters of life, it may be impossible to discern. Sometimes all we can do is fumble fumble blindly in the dark. Like all coins, my story is incomplete and has an uncertain ending." After writing the ups and downs, the joys and challenges of the chapters of my life, I've lost my fondness for certainty. It inhibits curiosity and dampens the capacity to hold the mystery of it all. If there's any meaning to be found in life, I believe it's in the searching, not in the finding. Sometimes I think that after all these years I have found myself. Other times I'm less sure. I do know one thing. I've always been a lucky boy, but I still don't know why. I'm more content that way not knowing what would life be anyway without its mysteries slipping through our fingers like coins in a river, lost and found, again and again? So that was the way I end the book. And it seemed to me I was approaching writing the book that this issue of uh, finding re- uh, some grand resolution to the questions and mysteries of my own life didn't or didn't deserve to have rational conclusions and and you know tightly tied up bows at the end of the thing in fact, this issue as I just I just read this issue when we get down to identity and who are we it It has to contain an issue of mystery the other forces that make why in this life did i why have I lived this life why have I had such enormously good luck? Why did I avoid what could have been a very tragic uh life instead I got this one so if that was the case, what was the purpose? Part of the purpose is actually to write this book. But I like I like for myself anyway, I was content with the idea of uh, of ending on a note of mystery because I think the more we, we delve into uh, the nature of who we are, into psyche, into the unconscious, uh, uh, the more questions we get rather than answers. And that to me is uh, uh, ultimately, for me personally, it's satisfying. That's awesome. Stephen Rowley, The Lost Coin. Where can people get your book? Well, you can get it on Amazon for the most part. It's on my website, which is uh, StephenRowley108.com. There's a whole page there. Other sources you can get the book. You can't get it here locally for <laughs> for various reasons. Eagle Harbor Books, reach out to me. Uh, so anyway um, – uh, yeah, uh, Amazon's probably the, the best and easiest place. This is some other bookstores over in Seattle, but uh, um, but we're I'm just still a, the book's only been out since the end of the middle of September, so we're just be- beginning to get into bookstores. It's not it's not I'm not uh, um, discouraged at all, but I, particularly since the the feedback I've gotten from people through podcasts and other appearances, it's been uh, it's been worth. Worth it. Uh, maybe a little bit like you said about having this podcast. These are, these can be expensive hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for putting uh, the bystander podcast on your book tour. This sure, time. I appreciate it. Thank you for
1: having me. Yeah, I wish you all the success in the world. Um, great book, good good story. Um, thank you for coming in. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Bystander. Be kind.